Welcome to Voice Over Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today is Monday, November 27th, 2023. As advertised, today's episode is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Peter Holland's book, Genius Thinking. Would you like to spark your creativity? Learn how to think critically? Learn how to master problem-solving techniques, how to develop grit and persevere in the face of adversity, and how to become more adaptable and thrive in a changing world? That's the goal of Peter Holland's book, and in it, he gives actionable steps to develop each of those skills. Thanks for joining us today. This is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Peter Holland's book, Genius Thinking. Chapter 1. What makes a genius? What is a genius? Perhaps the first answer that pops into your mind is the popular depiction of geniuses in TV shows. You know the kind. Smart-talking, slightly arrogant black sheep who seem to solve the crime or win the chess tournament without breaking a sweat. People have always been fascinated with genius and with the ability to wield superior intellectual mastery. Whether we admire geniuses in the arts, science, or business, there's something so irresistible about the idea of a human being operating at their fullest potential. If you've picked up this book, it's likely that you too are interested in what exactly sets geniuses apart. Are they just born that way, and us mere mortals can do nothing but look on in admiration? Or perhaps there is no such thing as genius at all. Only years of punishing, diligent hard work that pays off eventually? In this book, we're going to take the perspective so often adopted by geniuses themselves. We're going to approach the idea of intellectual mastery and success as our topic and study it as Einstein studied physics. In other words, we'll become students of human success and look closely not into any one subject but into the way we think about those subjects and how we can optimize our learning and abilities. We'll observe, take notes, and see what we can learn from the great thinkers of our time. And there's a lot to learn for those who are willing to pay attention. What genius can you think of off the top of your head? In this book, we'll look at the lives and works of people like Socrates, Einstein, Descartes, Darwin, and Copernicus, among others. Despite living in different cultural and historical periods, and despite having different interests and ideas, these men in fact share a surprisingly predictable set of personal characteristics. So, what are these traits? Before you carry on reading, close this book and see if you can zoom in on just one or two qualities or attributes that you think make the essence of a genius. Intellectual curiosity. Chances are you thought of something along the lines of a genius is intellectually hungry and curious about everything. No matter the chosen outlet, intelligent and highly conscious people tend to want to know why. It's this active, deliberate perspective that sets them apart from others who are happy to take things as they are without ever looking more deeply into them. When we're children, 
we're perhaps more like natural geniuses than at any other time in our lives. We are the proverbial learning sponges, soaking everything up, asking a million questions a day, wanting to know how things work just for the joy of having that knowledge. When we grow up, adults around us indoctrinate us into certain educational conventions and institutions that dull this natural curiosity. We learn the rules, the right answers, and which authority to defer to. In other words, we stop relying on our own innate fascination with the universe around us. For a genius, curiosity never seems to subside. No matter how old they are, they seem to have a knack for looking at the world with the wonder of a little child seeing it all for the first time. They are enraptured by things that... Chapter 2. Einstein and Combinatorial Play Albert Einstein is the world-renowned German physicist and mathematician who won the Nobel Prize in 1921 for his work on the photoelectric effect. Now considered one of the most influential scientific theorists in history, Einstein was known for being a deeply inquisitive and curious person. Reportedly, Einstein didn't enjoy school as a child, but early tutoring experiences sparked his interest in the topic of light. When Einstein excused himself from military service as a young man and dropped out of school, he preferred independent study, his parents were worried about his future. Nevertheless, he was admitted to a prestigious Zurich University because of his excellent performance on the maths and physics entrance exams. After graduating, he worked as a patent clerk where he privately pursued some of his own ideas. In 1905, he published four breakthrough papers on the photoelectric effect, Brownian motion, and relativity. Einstein married and had children, but his marriage was not a happy one, and he divorced and remarried in 1919. At the time, Einstein was less known for his theory of relativity than he is today, and perhaps could not have predicted the full direction his discoveries would take physics in the future. For example, his work foreshadowing the development of the atomic bomb. Einstein, not a one-trick pony. Surprisingly, or perhaps not, the most notable scientist of the 20th century was also known for taking time out of his research to play the violin. In so doing, Einstein was engaging in the combination of the hard and the soft, or more accurately, he was exercising skills that required very different mindsets. Reportedly, he was even very good at the instrument, as he was with the piano. But while sawing away on the violin during his breaks, Einstein actually arrived at some breakthroughs in his research and philosophical questionings. Allegedly, one of these musical sessions was the spark for his most famous equation, E equals MC squared. Knowing what we do about how true genius sees the world, this shouldn't surprise us. Einstein came up with the term combinatory play, to describe the intangible process in which his favorite pastime led to ideas that revolutionized the whole of scientific thought. He explained his reasoning, as best he could, in 1945 in a letter to French mathematician Jacques S. Hadamard. My dear colleague, in the following, 
I'm trying to answer in brief your questions as well as I'm able. I'm not satisfied myself with those answers, and I am willing to answer more questions if you believe this could be of any advantage for the very interesting and difficult work you've undertaken. A. The words or the language, as they are spoken, do not seem to play any role in my mechanism of thought. The physical entities which seem to serve as elements in thought are certain signs and more or less clear images which can be voluntarily reproduced and combined. There is, of course, a certain connection between those elements and relevant logical concepts. It's also clear that the desire to arrive finally at logically connected concepts is the emotional basis of this rather vague play with the above-mentioned elements. But, taken from a psychological viewpoint, this combinatory... Chapter 3 Socrates' Endless Questions One of the purest and most obvious ways to engage and practice our curiosity is to ask questions. Nothing could more plainly reflect a hunger for understanding, the student's mindset, or a willingness to open up to the new and unknown. The scientific method can be thought of as a formalized way to ask questions of the universe and a way to shape our inquiry and interpret the answers we get. But it all starts with questions, even questions like, what if? When it comes to the art of asking questions, we need look no further than Socrates, whose style of questioning his own thinking, the thinking of others, and reality itself has come to be called the Socratic method. Good questions end up allowing us to triangulate understanding. Take a textbook, for example. It's necessarily broad and cannot hope to cover all the subtleties involved. If we fully accept what we read, then we are set on a singular path. If we ask questions, we're able to see that the path itself contains twists and turns and may not even be accurate. Different lines of inquiry are generated, and we understand that there are multiple paths, each with their own perspective. Questions allow us to both clarify misunderstandings and reinforce what we already know. In the end, we come to an understanding of the same textbook and the information within that is nuanced and more accurate. Luckily for us, teachers have known the value of questions for literally thousands of years. The most helpful framework for generating insightful questions comes from none other than Socrates himself. The ancient Greek philosopher, perhaps best known for being Plato's teacher, as well as being executed by the state for corrupting the minds of the youth. His method of teaching was largely in the form of dialogues and questions, appropriately called the Socratic method. Socrates himself wrote nothing during his lifetime, but we can see his philosophy expounded in the works of Plato and other contemporaries. In these plays and dialogues, Socrates was described as someone who was deeply insightful, curious, and in possession of incredible mastery over language and logical argument. Nevertheless, he was a controversial figure in his time, and offended many, since his criticism of much of Athenian culture and politics at the time was considered impious. During his life, Socrates and his work were often mocked and derided in plays and writings, and it was mainly after his death 
that his followers attempted to preserve his contributions in the form of written dialogues, essentially conversations between him and themselves. Unfortunately, because Socrates lived so long ago, historians have little information on who he was as a person, beyond the ideas communicated by his contemporaries and followers. Nevertheless, even with the fragments we do have, we can recognize something of the genius traits that have not changed much in the thousands of years since Socrates lived. When it comes to curiosity, intellectual honesty, and patience, we may be hard-pressed to find an individual who better demonstrates these traits than Socrates. Understanding the Spirit of the Socratic Method When you boil it down, the Socratic method is when you ask questions upon questions in an Chapter 4 Darwin's Golden Rule Charles Darwin, the naturalist whose theories on evolution and the development of the species had wide ranging effects on scientific study that persists today, was not a genius. He wasn't especially good at math. He didn't have the quick thinking skills often attributed to geniuses. Charlie Munger once said he thought that if Darwin attended Harvard in 1986, he probably would have graduated around the middle of the pack. Biologist E.O. Wilson estimated that Darwin's IQ would have been around 130 or so, high, but not quite the level 140 where the word genius starts getting mentioned. Darwin was, however, relentless about learning. He devoured information about all the topics he was interested in pursuing. He hoarded facts and was hyper-diligent about taking notes. His ability to hold attention was legendary, and when it came to testing, his work ethic was tireless. Darwin's thinking was purposely slow because he was so fastidiously detail-oriented. He believed that to have any authority on a topic, one needed to develop deep expertise on it, and expertise doesn't happen overnight, or in a month, or in a year. The point is that Darwin is regarded as one of the ultimate examples of the importance of hard work and diligence in surpassing natural intelligence. Darwin's Uncommon Talent Darwin's method was so all-encompassing that he even gave deep attention to information that countered or challenged his own theories. This approach forms the backbone of his golden rule, as he expressed it in his autobiography. The very basic guideline of Darwin's golden rule was to be more than just open to contradicting or opposing ideas. Indeed, Darwin gave them his fullest attention. I had also, during many years, followed a golden rule, namely that whenever a published fact, a new observation or thought came across me which was opposed to my general results, to make a memorandum of it, without fail and at once. For I had found by experience that such facts and thoughts were far more apt to escape from memory than favorable ones. Darwin completely immersed himself in evidence or explanations that went against his findings because he was aware that the human mind is inclined to dispose of those contrary views. If he didn't investigate them as fully as he could, he'd be likely to forget them and that would create mental dishonesty. 
Darwin knew that his own instinctual thinking could be a hindrance to finding the truth as much as it could help, and he established a way to ensure he wasn't missing out on any information. Darwin handled all this conflicting information responsibly. He genuinely considered material that might have disproved his assertions and took pains to fully absorb every single scenario, anomaly, and exception to his theories. He didn't filter out information that didn't support his beliefs. He was utterly immune to confirmation bias. More than anything else, Darwin didn't want to be careless in finding the truth. He knew that a half-cocked assertion solely intended to persuade others without much thought was intellectually dishonest. His thorough method required more time and effort on his part, but he was committed. Of course, the Darwinian Golden Rule called... Chapter 5. René Descartes and Starting from Zero The Frenchman René Descartes is generally considered the founder of modern Western philosophy. It's a lofty title, but the magnitude of work he put forth in his life speaks for itself. Western European academics and philosophers at the time of his life, 1596 to 1650, generally rushed to respond to his multitude of ideas, and that intellectual activity formed the backbone of the Enlightenment period of humanity. What was Descartes' main contribution for the purposes of this book, i.e., learning to think like a genius? Stubborn doubt and adhering to a simple mandate of the pursuit of truth. Oh, and not blindly believing the thinkers who came before him. For Descartes, the fact that something was stated to be true did not mean it was, because he was unable to either observe or reason it for himself. You can now imagine why his thoughts left other philosophers rushing to respond, because he upended literal centuries of thought. And so, eventually Descartes became known for his stances on doubt and not believing dogma for dogma's sake. He required proper examination and analysis. Only from there could you be sure that you weren't building your knowledge on a house of cards. The following words have sometimes been used to describe Descartes' approach to thought. Doubt, skepticism, distrust, and rationalism. All he wanted to do was discover and understand. You could see this approach as not trusting in others, but rather it was Descartes' way of gaining a sense of certainty. Without certainty in what we're saying through proof or experience, nothing can be taken as truth, and truth is all Descartes ever wanted. Starting from Zero Descartes suggests that it's pointless to claim that something is real or exists unless we first know how such a claim could be justified as a true belief. But to say that our beliefs are justified, we have to be able to base them, ultimately, on a belief that is itself indubitable. Such a belief could then provide a firm foundation on which all subsequent beliefs are grounded and could thus be known as true. But how could we know that those beliefs are grounded and true? This seems like it could devolve into circular thinking, but those final beliefs must be based on what is provable or observable. Essentially, Descartes prompts a chain of asking, but how do you know, until you can point to a direct experience or real evidence? 
Can you think of a highly popular institution that this approach might conflict with, especially with events like the Spanish Inquisition burning people for heresy barely a century past? That's right, religion, which tends to be based on faith and the very absence of proof. Although Descartes remained a committed Catholic throughout his life, you can imagine how controversial his writings were for the time. For reference, his contemporary, Galileo Galilei, was famously found guilty of heresy by the Catholic Church for his views on how the earth revolved around the sun in 1633. Ironically, Descartes' method of doubting was aimed at defending the Catholic faith and using reasoning and logic to confirm the truth of the religion. However, the Enlightenment marked an erosion of the Church's authority and influence, so perhaps Descartes had the opposite effect that he intended. Chapter 6. Tesla and Edison. Two Paths to Success. For our sixth chapter, we'll have to consider two very prominent and successful people simply because it's so hard to talk about one without mentioning the other. Let's begin with Nikola Tesla, who, many will agree, embodies some of the world's fondest ideas of what it means to be an innovator. While many prominent figures from ancient history were certainly polymaths and had a wide range of interests, this could partly be explained by the fact that men of a certain class invariably did enjoy varied classical educations, and that it was not uncommon to expect such a gentleman to dabble in everything from art to politics to medicine. However, true polymathy is less and less common in the modern world, as it becomes more complex. Tesla bucks the trend for specialism, though, and was known throughout his life for being interested in many areas, and a prolific and successful inventor with over 300 patents to his name. His most well-known contribution to science is his design of the Alternating Current Electricity System, or AC Electricity for short. Edison, a teacher and rival. If Tesla's accomplishments sound familiar to you, it's probably because they're very similar to those of Thomas Edison, who was granted a whopping 1,093 patents for various inventions, including the phonograph, the alkaline storage battery, the typewriter, the electric pen, and the motion picture camera, and, yes, the light bulb. As productive and industrious as his peer Tesla, he died leaving more than 3,000 notebooks containing his prolific brainstorming over the course of his six decades of work. Edison had no formal education at all, yet possessed one of history's most creative and out-of-the-box thinking styles. Though their approaches did differ, both Tesla and Edison shared a passion for lateral thinking, and both had a dogged determination to keep on pursuing the ideas they were interested in, no matter how many times they failed. Though Edison was certainly the most prolific and productive of the two, and worked hard all his life, arguably, Tesla was the most inventive and novel in thought, challenging conventions in ways that are still noteworthy today. In the late 1880s, two new but different electric power transmission systems were enjoying a moment of fierce competition, and three prominent scientists or manufacturers were engaged in what's now called the War of the Currents. 
on the one hand was high-voltage alternating current, AC, and on the other was low-voltage direct current, DC. The former was associated with arc lamp street lighting, and the latter with newer low-voltage incandescent lighting used indoors. On the side of DC was Edison, and on the side of AC was Tesla and George Westinghouse of General Electric. Edison had designed the world's first light bulb in the late 1870s, dominating the market by around 1882. Enter young Serbian scientist Nikola Tesla, who emigrated to work with Edison on DC generators, but who also wanted to share his new idea for AC current devices. Fast forward to 1888, and Tesla has quit working for Edison and now has a few patents for his AC technology, which Edison claimed had no future. Tesla sold the patents to George. Chapter 7. Copernicus and Galileo. The Courage to Go Against the Grain. In today's world, most people admire non-conventional thinkers and rule-breakers, and we all understand that those mavericks and big thinkers who challenge assumptions today often end up making astonishing breakthroughs tomorrow. But this attitude is a relatively modern one, and for most of human history, innovators and those who question things faced a most formidable challenge, the stubbornness of those around them. Today we have the benefit of hindsight, and can easily look at those who used to believe the Earth was the center of the universe as foolish, but try to imagine what it was like for Galileo, that famous intellectual black sheep who lived in a world where heliocentrism was so obvious, only a heretic would argue against it. It would be the equivalent today of arguing that people could reverse their age, or that it was possible for humans to photosynthesize. What it takes to be different To understand Galileo, we must understand Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus, who was the very first to claim that the Earth, and indeed all the other planets, orbit the sun in our solar system. Though educated and destined for a career in the church, Copernicus, like many others in his well-to-do class, also studied law, medicine, arts, and astrology. For a time, Copernicus assisted his professors in making astrological predictions for others. Astrology was far closer to astronomy than what we call astrology today and gradually came to criticize the common geocentric or Ptolemaic view. The geocentric idea was that the universe was arranged in concentric spheres, with the Earth smack bang in the middle, and everything rotating neatly in circles around it. Even simple observations, however, contradicted this idea, and many astronomers at the time simply couldn't explain why planets moved in unpredictable ways or even reverse their orbits sometimes. Copernicus published several papers during his lifetime explaining his astronomical theories, and his book, On the Revolutions of Heavenly Bodies, was completed in 1543 and devoted to Pope Paul III. He compiled work on the Earth's spin on its axis, ideas about orbits, the stars, eclipses, and other groundbreaking concepts that today are seen to be the true foundation of all astrology, cosmology, physics, and mathematics. Though Copernicus would gain some fame around the world after his passing, at the time of his death in 1543, 
there were still several unresolved issues around the heliocentric theory, which posed as many new questions as it answered. Galileo Galilei was born some years later in Italy in 1564, into a Christian world that still largely propounded geocentrism. Through his efforts, the Copernican theory was extended and popularized in the early 17th century, with the help of other contemporaries, like Johannes Kepler. But his work was plagued with near-constant resistance from the Church. The conflict was bitter and prolonged. The Church had always held that God had created man at the center of the world, and to suggest otherwise was seen as sacrilege. Whilst a man like Darwin managed to push through this resistance, Galileo lived in less progressive times and was publicly forced to recant his claims. Knowing what we do about intellectual honor... Chapter 8. Napoleon. No time for the trivial. Napoleon, quite literally, needs no introduction. Though the military leader, strategist, and emperor is not someone you might initially think of as a genius, his ability to rise through the ranks and conquer most of Europe required a tactical intelligence that historians and personal development gurus alike are still fascinated with today. In 1799, Napoleon seized political power in France in a coup d'etat, then crowned himself emperor in 1804. He was renowned as a shrewd, ambitious, and particularly skilled strategist with a military intelligence that allowed him to command armies that would beat a string of larger European coalitions and expand French territory in ways never seen before. At the time, few in the developed world did not know Napoleon's name. As impressive as this is, a lot has changed in the world in the 200 years since Napoleon's exile and death, and yet his skill set is just as applicable now as it was then. A big part of his success resulted from his peculiar brand of ruthlessness. Simply put, Napoleon knew his priorities and refused to let anything else distract him from their accomplishment. Granted, Napoleon's success had a lot to do with his raw talent and military aptitude, and, let's be honest, plenty of luck. But in this chapter, we'll be looking at three surprising traits that allowed him to distinguish himself from other equally capable military minds of the period. Informational Triage Interestingly, the word triage actually comes from France during the Napoleonic War period. The idea gained traction when Napoleon's chief military surgeon, D.J. Larry, designed and implemented what would be the world's first ambulance system, as well as a means for sorting incoming patients based on their need and given limited resources. In war, there's no time for waste, for delay, or for uncertainty, and when men's lives are on the line, as in a military hospital, this is even more so the case. There's simply no time for inelegance. Larry created a simple system in which he could assign every new patient a category based on their condition. One, people who would probably live anyway, 
whether they received immediate care or not. 2. People who would probably die anyway, whether they received immediate care or not. 3. People for whom immediate care would make the difference between living or dying. You'll notice first that these categories immediately suggest a strategy, and also that they require a certain fortitude and frankness, i.e., the strength to acknowledge bad news as bad news and act appropriately and rationally, despite how scaring or upsetting that may be. But the categories make sense when we consider the fact of limited resources. In a medical setting, there are only so many beds, so many nurses, so much medicine. In life in general, we are all required to live with two very important finite resources, time and and energy. Time. Chapter 9. Abraham Lincoln and His Team of Rivals Recall Edison's attitude to failure. I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. When you're a scientist conducting an experiment, any outcome is valuable because it adds to your understanding and knowledge, even if the result is not quite what you expected. In this chapter, we'll be talking about a man who was known for his supreme political intelligence, leadership skills, and incredible statesmanship. Abraham Lincoln was perhaps not a genius in the conventional sense, but his cleverness lay in his ability to work with what he had and to use diplomacy to make an impact. Lincoln was particularly admired for his habit of surrounding himself with people who actively disagreed with him. Doris Kearns Goodwin has written a book exploring this genius approach of the famed former president, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. The concepts that Goodwin outlines, however, are classic ones, and many others have understood the value of surrounding yourself with good people and not just people who like and agree with you. It's essentially the same principle that Edison understood. We learn not by endless successes, but by failure and challenge. When elected to presidency, Lincoln assembled a rather surprising cabinet, the three men that he had beaten. These were rivals in the sense that they had competed fiercely with him and were former political opponents who didn't share all his positions. But rather than letting his ego get the best of him and attempt to hide his competitors and critics out of sight, Lincoln did the opposite, and deliberately sought to make use of their talents in government. In other words, the fact that they disagreed and were rivals didn't mean they couldn't be on a team and work toward the same goal, something perhaps unthinkable in the highly divisive modern American political landscape. Lincoln's reasons were many. The first is that people who are actively competing with you and coming close to besting you are going to be good, capable people. Though they're competitors, they have valuable skills and talents, and Lincoln could see their strength even if it wasn't his own. Many geniuses toil away alone, on their own paths, perhaps fighting off competition, but for Lincoln, his genius lay in the fact that he could recognize the intelligence in others and use that to his advantage, and indeed the advantage of the country he led. Keep your enemies close. 
how many CEOs achieve their rank and then immediately work to get rid of all the people on their team they don't like. Why do they do this? Simple. They only want to hear what they already know, and they want a group of yes-men to agree that their idea is best. They want people who won't challenge them, and if they're a little flattering, all the better. But a person who never engages with different views, disagreement, or challenge makes the same mistake as the person who cannot tolerate the first version of their invention failing. It's not success that builds us up and makes us stronger, but rather challenge. We're not good leaders simply because we've found a group of people who will blindly follow us. Rather, we develop real vision and strength when we can hold firm in our positions because we have properly considered the other views. The physicists, mathematicians, and philosophers we've already discussed in this book. Chapter 1. What makes a genius? What is a genius? Perhaps the first answer that pops into your mind is the popular depiction of geniuses in TV shows. You know the kind. Smart-talking, slightly arrogant black sheep who seem to solve the crime or win the chess tournament without breaking a sweat. People have always been fascinated with genius and with the ability to wield superior intellectual mastery. Whether we admire geniuses in the arts, science, or business, there's something so irresistible about the idea of a human being operating at their fullest potential. If you've picked up this book, it's likely that you too are interested in what exactly sets geniuses apart. Are they just born that way, and us mere mortals can do nothing but look on in admiration? Or perhaps there is no such thing as genius at all, only years of punishing, diligent hard work that pays off eventually? In this book, we're going to take the perspective so often adopted by geniuses themselves. We're going to approach the idea of intellectual mastery and success as our topic and study it as Einstein studied physics. In other words, we'll become students of human success and look closely not into any one subject, but into the way we think about those subjects and how we can optimize our learning and abilities. We'll observe, take notes, and see what we can learn from the great thinkers of our time. And there's a lot to learn for those who are willing to pay attention. What genius can you think of off the top of your head? In this book, we'll look at the lives and works of people like Socrates, Einstein, Descartes, Darwin, and Copernicus, among others. Despite living in different cultural and historical periods, and despite having different interests and ideas, these men in fact share a surprisingly predictable set of personal characteristics. So, what are these traits? Before you carry on reading, close this book and see if you can zoom in on just one or two qualities or attributes that you think make the essence of a genius. Intellectual Curiosity Chances are you thought of something along the lines of a genius is intellectually hungry, and curious about everything. No matter the chosen outlet, intelligent and highly conscious people tend to want to know why. It's this active, deliberate perspective that sets them apart from others who are happy to take things as they are, without ever looking more deeply into them. When we're children, we're perhaps more like natural geniuses than at any other time in our lives. 
We are the proverbial learning sponges, soaking everything up, asking a million questions a day, wanting to know how things work just for the joy of having that knowledge. When we grow up, adults around us indoctrinate us into certain educational conventions and institutions that dull this natural curiosity. We learn the rules, the right answers, and which authority to defer to. In other words, we stop relying on our own innate fascination with the universe around us. For a genius, curiosity never seems to subside. No matter how old they are, they seem to have a knack for looking at the world with the wonder of a little child seeing it all for the first time. They are enraptured by things that other people think are commonplace. They want to understand how it all works, what it means, how it fits together, and they don't stop investigating until they find out. This has been VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? I'm Russell, founder of Newton Media Group and producer of VoiceOver Work. You can find us at newtonmg.com. And of course, we'd like you to check out the author's website at bit.ly slash Peter Hollins. Join us again next week for our next audiobook preview.